from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I catching President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 3rd. Today, the problem of Marjorie Taylor Greene, the nursing home workers turning down vaccines, and COVID regulations in the Alps. Thanks for the time, Senator. Um, Along with this push for unity that you spoke of and the challenges that come with that, I'm curious to know what you think about the current divide within your own party and how concerned you are about that and what do you think about this debate over um, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene? Do you think she should be stripped of her committee assignments? Republican members of Congress are suddenly facing tough questions about a newly elected lawmaker in their ranks, Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Yeah, there should be no debate about Marjorie Taylor Greene. She's nutty. Um, she's an embarrassment uh, to our party. There's no place Uh, for her in the Republican Party. There ought to be no place. This is Senator Todd Young, Republican from Indiana. Of course, people of her congressional district, it's their prerogative if they want to abase themselves by by voting uh, to elect uh, someone who indulges in anti-Semitic conspiracy theories and all manner of of other nonsense. But I've got no tolerance for, for people like that. This week, Republicans like Young had been considering whether to sideline Green in Congress because of her history promoting conspiracy theories. But reporter Michael Cranish has been looking into how she got elected in the first place and what her position in Congress says about the state of the Republican Party. Marjorie Taylor Greene is a 46-year-old congresswoman from North Georgia. She had never held political office before. Michael covers national politics for The Post. So when she first ran, little was known about her. She had been in her family's construction business. Her father had founded a construction company, and she helped manage that. And then she founded a gym called CrossFit Passion. Uh, It was back in 2007. A friend of mine, uh, she had heard about CrossFit, and we worked out— at a regular gym, and she asked me, she said, do you want to try out this crazy underground cult fitness thing called CrossFit? Yeah. And I was like, um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so we we uh, looked it up. That was in 2015 when she gave a radio interview about her gym. Your membership is basically a community, and so you have everyone is valuable, and everyone has something to offer each other. So, I mean, in our community, we get our hair cut at the gym mm-hmm. um, because we have someone that's amazing at that. Um, we have a doctor that we've gone to that we're, when we're sick. Okay. Um, she just sounded, you know, like a very forthcoming uh, business person and hadn't really expressed political views. Okay. Now, um, have you guys been following 4chan, Q, any of that stuff? And then in 2017, she made a video for her Facebook page where she talked about this individual that's known as QAnon. I'm going to tell you, I don't know who Q is, but I'm just going to tell you about it because I think it's something worth listening to and paying attention to. It's basically a baseless series of conspiracies that are put forward under the label of QAnon. Now, 
Q is a patriot. He is someone that is very much loves his country, and he's on the same page as us, and he is very pro-Trump, okay? But what's best known about this person is he's alleged to be a top government official who knows all about some kind of child trafficking rim supposedly run by Democrats and global elites. It's an entirely baseless theory. There's no evidence of it whatsoever, but there are a lot of adherents. There's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to take this global cable of Satan-worshipping pedophiles out, and I think we have the president to do it. And so I'm very excited about that. I don't know if she was radicalized before, but the things she started saying espoused a very radicalized ideology in line with QAnon and other things. And this was how she ran. Marjorie Taylor Greene, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're running. Thank you so much, Heather. I'm a successful business owner, a wife and mom of three kids. I have truly lived the American dream. And the Democrat Party is no longer an American party. They are now the party of socialism. They want to rip our borders wide open. They want to kill babies up until birth and maybe even afterwards. They want to tax us with crazy policies like the Green New Deal. So Congresswoman Green, she very publicly talks about QAnon and QAnon conspiracy theories. But there are also a lot of other beliefs that she has or things that she has said that to many are controversial, are racist, are incendiary. Can you talk through some of this other stuff? So Marjorie Taylor Greene has espoused a lot of baseless theories. She has said, for example, that mass shootings are, in essence, staged. She called one, and for example, a, quote, false flag event, which essentially is the equivalent of saying that they were staged by gun control people to put forward gun control measures. And so she portrayed this as an assault on her Second Amendment rights. There's absolutely nothing to this theory. These were not false flag events. These were tragedies in which many people were killed, for example, at the Parkland, Florida school in Las Vegas and New Zealand and on and on. So these were great tragedies. And the people who were affected, who had people killed that they knew, they were very upset about this. There is a very famous teenager, David Hogue, who went to the school in Parkland, Florida, and there's a video. David, why are you supporting the red flag laws? Of Marjorie Taylor Greene. I'm on the grounds of the U.S. Capitol, trailing him and saying, And how did you get kids? Why do you use kids? Who's paying for you to lobby for gun laws and so forth? He has nothing to say because he's paid to do this. He has the walkaway march. He's got the, um, he's got the women's march. And they're funding all of this. Every town gun USA, they're funding all this stuff, okay? That was David Hogue right there. And we did talk to him. And he felt that this was harassment, that there have been death threats against him. And here he was. He had classmates who were killed in the shooting, and she is going after him, basically saying, you're going after my Second Amendment's rights. Um, and that's not what he's doing. He and others are urging gun control. Uh, for example, some gun control advocates talk about assault weapons. They're not talking about taking away your hunting rifle, just to be clear. And what are some of the other comments that she has made in recent months or even recent years that have really gotten a lot of attention? Well, she's put forward a lot of theories. She talked about how there were laser beams from space that may have caused the fires in California. She's questioned some things about 9-11. She went after U.S. representatives who were elected to Congress who were Muslim. They signed it. They swore in on the Korean 
Oh, we have the Bible. We're going to talk about swearing in on the uh, how to swear in on the Bible mm -hmm. with okay. them, mm -hmm. and let them know what our law says yes. that you can't swear in on the Quran. So we're going to we're going to explain that. You know, that is not true. The Constitution specifically says that there's no religious test for elective office. We have a separation of church and state. But there are apparently a lot of people who believe things like this, and she would post videos of herself on Facebook and elsewhere that got a lot of attention. So she became you know, well-known in the sphere of people who wanted to believe things like that. The Southern Poverty Law Center, which tracks hate groups and so forth, in August of 2019, they put out a detailed report long before Green ran in the district she eventually won in, outlining a lot of things that she'd said and the controversies about them. So, you know, this was well-known. Her statements were well-known. But nonetheless, uh, she was backed by a number of top Republicans for that seat. And I think it was very surprising to a lot of people when she won in the primary. It was surprising when she won in the general election. And now she is a full-fledged member of Congress. Why has that been concerning to people? Well, when she won in the primary, that brought her to national attention. And, and in Georgia, you have a runoff system, just like you recently did in the Senate races. So she was the top vote getter, but she had to face a runoff against Dr. John Cowan, a neurosurgeon. So at that point, there was a lot more publicity was out there about statements that she'd made, even though much of what she had said was well-known. New publicity basically led the two House Republican leaders to express statements of concern. And this was from Kevin McCarthy, the House minority leader, and from Steve Scalise, the number two leader. And they both issued statements of concern, and Scalise actually endorsed her opponent, Dr. Cowan. But that didn't stop a lot of other Republicans from embracing her. She had been endorsed even before the runoff by Jim Jordan, the Ohio Republican, who is associated with the House Freedom Caucus, this very conservative caucus. She's also backed by... Deborah Meadows, who is the wife of Mark Meadows, who was the congressman from North Carolina who co-founded the House Freedom Caucus, and Meadows went on to be Trump's chief of staff. Deborah Meadows was the executive director of a group called Woman Right, and I looked into that because that was important. Deborah Meadows backing her and that political action committee backing her told people that this had the imprimatur of other Republicans, and given her connection to her husband and her husband's work as chief of staff for then-President Trump, that had quite an impact. And her political action committee said that it had gone through this robust vetting process, quote-unquote, to look at candidates that it was endorsing. And so they basically gave their stamp of approval to Marjorie Taylor Greene, notwithstanding all the very controversial things that she had said. And I think what you're describing is so important because right now it seems like there is this way of talking about Marjorie Taylor Greene from Republicans that makes her out to be kind of this random anomaly, right? That like she was elected by people in her district for reasons that a lot of us don't really understand and that she's not reflective of anything larger in the GOP. But that that's not really true, that she was supported by people who are very high in the Republican Party along the way and actively encouraged. Right. And that really was one of the most striking findings of our reporting. John Cowan, her opponent in the runoff, knew people in the Trump administration. He actually trained as a doctor with Ben Carson, who was the Secretary of Housing and Urban Development 
under then-President Trump. And so he called Ben Carson and said, look, you know, this woman is a QAnon believer. She's got all these baseless beliefs. He was saying, I'm not just saying this because I'm trying to beat her, but he felt that this would tear apart the Republican Party. And he urged Carson to get something done about this. And Carson basically told him there's really nothing that he could do, according to Cowan. Carson did not return requests for comment. But it just shows you how well-known these views were. And nonetheless, Republicans, they did issue some statements. And I mentioned that Scalise endorsed the opponent. But really, she was embraced you know, by a lot of figures in the party. And that told people in turn that this was okay, that this was the person to vote for. And she also had the support of these various gun groups that wanted to create what they called sanctuary counties, where basically gun laws wouldn't be enforced. And she really used that also uh, very strongly in her campaign. And what do we know about her relationship with President Trump and how Trump viewed her candidacy? Well, Trump, during the primary, didn't directly say something. But as soon as she won the uh, runoff, he welcomed her. He said that she's going to be a star in the Republican Party. So just think about that. You have the president of the United States saying that this woman who espoused these QAnon theories is going to be a star in the party and congratulating her. I should note that Marjorie Taylor Greene did say later on, after promoting these QAnon theories, that she then went in a different direction. It's not really clear what she meant by that, but she had promoted so many baseless theories that I'm not sure if that makes that much difference as far as the concerns and perceptions about her. So now that Greene is in Congress and continues to hold many of these views, what kind of problem does that present for congressional leadership? Well, for congressional leaders, it really does present a dilemma because they had appointed her to the Education and Labor Committee. And then there was a lot of blowback, particularly from uh, Democrats, saying, how can you put this person who basically said some of these school shootings were false flag events and put her on the Education and Labor Committee? You know, they were appalled. And as it came out that there were reports that she had made violence statements regarding Nancy Pelosi, saying that she was guilty of treason and people guilty of treason are killed— Nancy Pelosi said, this is appalling. How can you possibly put her on this committee? So there's a lot of tension there. There have been cases where Republicans have removed members from committees when certain things have been said. Some Republicans were saying, well, she said these before we, she was a member of Congress, and we can only look at things that were said while she's a member of Congress. So their decision really hinged on whether they want to continue this association with her. There are some in the party who believe we need people who support persons like this. What's clear is that they did, you know, welcome her despite their expression of concern into the party and they put her on this committee, at least initially, which was seen as sort of a promotion. And that has enabled her profile to be even higher. And then, of course, there are just like basic questions of how people are going to be able to work with her on the most simple level as fellow members of Congress. Congresswoman Cori Bush has said that she is moving her office further away from Greens because she was worried after she felt that Green had berated her in a hallway without a mask, especially after the Capitol insurrection on January 6th. I think that there are actual fears about physical threats or violence in the Capitol. And it seems like even the basic question of whether or not people can work with her is like a question that hasn't been answered. Yeah, one of the most striking things about whenever you write about Congress these days is you have to remind yourself these people were elected to come here and do something. They weren't necessarily 
elected to come here and simply berate other people or refuse to work with members of their own party or other parties. And it's something that's very difficult for the Biden administration to face because they're going to have a hard time ever winning over a member uh, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, it seems like. Maybe there's some issue that they can come to agreement on. But the lack of comity, and I spell that C-O-M-I-T-Y, not the other pronunciation, you know, it really is one of the great problems in Washington. This week, for example, Senate uh, Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who lost his majority status in part because of all the divisions within his own party, he denounced Marjorie Taylor Greene, in effect, by talking about how can people believe in these loony ideas. I mean, that's an extraordinary statement for the leader of a party to make about a member of that party. But that's where we're at. And it also seems like, in some ways, Green embodies so much of what the challenge is for the Republican Party going forward, that yes, President Trump is no longer in the White House and is no longer the actual leader of the party. But at the same time, you have people who are in Congress who are espousing many of the ideas that President Trump espoused, who speak with the same hyperbolic partisan rhetoric, spread things that are not true in the way that Trump did. And it's hard to imagine how that element of the GOP just, like, goes away. I mean, I don't know that you'll see other members get out there and espouse QAnon theories, but they've certainly a lot of members that have put forward a lot of claims that are baseless. You have an awful lot of factors that make it very difficult for the two parties to even talk about finding consensus because they're so angry at each other. And yet we have this all going on at the time of a pandemic when you think the need for some kind of consensus is greater than ever. So Marjorie Taylor Greene may not have other people who agree with all of her theories, but you can see how the espousing of those theories and the welcoming of people like her into the party has manifested itself in action that we saw in the storming of the Capitol and other matters. Michael Cranish is a national political reporter for The Post. On Wednesday afternoon, House Democrats announced that they would take a vote on Thursday over whether to remove Green from her committee assignments. That happened after Republicans signaled that they would take no action of their own. Really, throughout the pandemic since March, long-term care facilities, and that includes nursing homes, assisted living, and independent living, have been the hardest hit. This is local reporter Rachel Chasen. She's been covering nursing homes in the pandemic. They've suffered some of the most deaths of any sort of congregate settings, and they've, they've been sort of the epicenter of, of this pandemic. And so I think for that reason, there has been an argument that people who work at long-term care facilities and at nursing homes should be near the front of the line when it comes to receiving vaccines. But how has that played out in real life? The staff and residents in long-term care facilities are in that first sort of priority group for vaccines in Maryland, Virginia, and D.C. And that means that they had the first shot at getting a first dose of the vaccine. And the response has been pretty mixed. Among residents, the uptake has been really high. We talked to a number of facilities and a number of industry representatives who said that the uptake among residents is like upwards of 90%, generally speaking. So that means that among the people who are living there, they are getting that first dose of the vaccine and eager to get it. 
but the challenge really has been among staff. So it sounds like in the initial round, large majorities of staff were declining to get the vaccine because of hesitancy they felt. And that, that's true across D.C., Maryland and Virginia, and I, and I think across the country as well. When you say large majorities, like what does the data tell us about what percent of people we're talking about? The data varies from place to place, but what Maryland's acting health secretary said is that they were seeing between a 35 to 50 percent uptake among staff at nursing homes, and they were expecting closer to 80 or 90 percent. And then one union representative we talked to who represents nursing home workers in Maryland and D.C., she estimated that up to 80% of members chose not to be vaccinated during the first round of clinics. Oh my gosh. That is so surprising to me. Is that something that people are seeing nationally as well? It is. And one caveat is that the way that clinics roll out, there are three that are done at each nursing home through the federal partnership with CVS and Walgreens. So in the first round, anyone who wants one can get one right away. In the second round, people, the second round, which happens three to four weeks later, people who weren't sure can sign up. Or if you got your your first vaccine, then you can get a second dose. And so one thing that was sort of hopeful that people were telling us was that they are seeing higher uptake on that second round. But even so, I mean, it sounds like there is still a significant number of caretakers who are declining to get the vaccine or who have hesitancy or concerns about it. Like, what do we know about why that is, especially if they're in situations where they're both potentially exposed in pretty significant ways, but also where they're around a lot of vulnerable people who I'm sure they don't want want to get sick? I think in thinking about that, it's really important to think about who these staff members are. So David Grabowski, a Harvard University health policy professor, said the numbers shouldn't surprise anyone who are familiar with long-term care facilities. We've seen this for many years in the nursing home setting. Uh, For years, nursing home workers have been reluctant to take the flu vaccine, for example. Uh, Among this workforce, uh, there's a lack of trust in the healthcare system, in our government, and in the management and leadership at nursing homes. Staff at these facilities are largely low-wage workers. They're mostly Black and Latino. And there's a lot of sort of historic mistrust that has been built up in those communities of the medical establishment. Workers in nursing homes, they make close to minimum wage. They are predominantly female. Over over 90% of the workforce is female. A large number are recent immigrants and persons of color. They, they often lack kind of health benefits. Uh, so it, it, it's, a, it's a vulnerable workforce. And I, I think part of the explanation for, for why we failed to, to invest in this workforce going back many years uh, does relate to some sexism, some, some racism, classism. And I think the, the other thing is that they've seen guidance from the CDC and from state and local health departments really rapidly change as as they've dealt with this crisis. And so they've sort of been on the front lines as they're told, you know, at first not to wear masks, then to wear masks, given different guidance about how long to isolate people. And they, so as they've seen all this, all this rapidly um, changing information, I think that the distrust has built up even further. 
Oh, that's so interesting that because of the back and forth on what exactly the science says and what's being communicated from the CDC and whether or not that's reliable or changing, that that has made them get to this point where they're like, we actually don't trust what is coming out of the government of what is safe and what we should be doing in these situations. Exactly. When CVS first came to give the first um, dose of shots, there were a lot of people hesitant to take it because they were, you know, they heard the stories before about other people having bad side effects. We talked to Devenia Kemp. She's a geriatric nursing assistant who works at Franklin Woods Center in Baltimore County. So they wanted to wait <laughs> to see everybody there who, you know, took the um, the vaccine. They wanted to wait to see how we were going to take it, how we were going to handle it. And second time they came, they got the vaccine because nothing happened to us. And Davinia decided to take the vaccine when it was first offered to her. And that led to a lot of questions from her friends and coworkers. I've had, when I got the vaccine, I've had so many people come up to me and ask me the same question. Do you have any side effects? Are you, do you twitch or, or <laughs> do you have pain? I'm like, no, I'm perfectly fine. That was one of the best ways to sort of build up build up trust because they don't necessarily want to hear it in like a big staff meeting or in frequently asked questions that might get sent out. They want to hear it from someone they trust who actually has experience with it. And then how are long-term care facilities and nursing homes, like how are they managing this problem of, of staff who are hesitant about being vaccinated? I mean, is there a world in which they are ultimately required to, to do that if they're around a vulnerable population and if the risk of an outbreak in, in one of these places is so great? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question. So a lot of the providers that we talk to are at this stage not requiring staff to get vaccinated, but they are really encouraging them. They're doing these sort of education campaigns where they have town halls. They identify sort of the natural leaders among their staff and encourage them to get vaccinated and then to spread the word among the rest of staff. They've also gotten more creative. So like one DC nursing home did a raffle where they offered monetary prizes. My colleague Rebecca talked to a uh, an administrator at a nursing home in Baltimore who sort of said he did everything he possibly could in his arsenal. He's a pastor, so he talked, sort of like invoked his authority as a pastor when he's talking about it. He broadcast messages over the loudspeaker. Um, and I, th I think there's just sort of like a whole range of options. We also did talk to one administrator who said, you know, it's fine if you don't want to get it, but if, if you don't want to get it, then he will be parting ways with you. You cannot work at his facility because he feels like it's really that important um, that, that staff get the vaccine. It feels like what is happening in nursing homes right now is, in many ways, it feels like it has all the elements of the larger challenges with getting a significant portion of the population to agree to to take this vaccine, right? Like you have the hesitancy among populations who have not been particularly well served during the pandemic or, or previously by like the medical community. And then you have a sense of like, concern for yourself versus weighing the cost to a community of like, you you yourself don't want to get sick, but also what happens if you get other people sick and what happens if you are part of the spread? And then you have to think about those concerns as well. And, and then it just seems like you have to weigh a lot of different priorities in this one decision. 
Absolutely. I think that that's sort of exactly what it is. And it's just like the stakes are so much higher in these facilities because the people who are living in them are truly society's most vulnerable. They're the oldest. They have gotten the sickest when they get when they get coronavirus. And so that's why it's sort of like all the more important that officials figure this out. Rachel Chasen is a local reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. I've been covering the coronavirus pandemic from Europe for the last year or so. And what really struck me on my trips was how much the approaches to handling the pandemic changed whenever I crossed a border. That's Rick Nowak. He brings this dispatch from the snowy peaks of the Franco-Swiss border. I wanted to do a story that really drives home how different approaches to the pandemic are clashing, not just between continents, but even within regions where border controls had almost disappeared over the last decades. I eventually decided to drive to two villages along the Swiss-French border, where you're really finding a bizarre situation these days. On the French side, the government has shut all the ski lifts to curb infections. Uh, But on the Swiss side of the border, ski lifts are still running. And on some days, they're more crowded than they've ever been before. So in normal years, you have to imagine those two villages as almost one community. Uh, They share the same mountain. You can take a French lift up the mountain, pass into Switzerland, and then ski back down to France without even realizing that you crossed the border. But when I arrived there, I found an almost surreal situation where the French village, which is called Châtel, had essentially turned into a ghost town. The shops were empty, restaurants closed, uh, the lift shuttered. I met up with uh, Lionel Doiron, who owns an equipment store there, and who told me that for the first time in over half a century, they've had to close one day a week during this winter season. Um, So how has the situation looked over the last um, few? Uh, It's a very, very bad situation because, you know, uh, for Christmas... The first week, we have nearly no one. And after for New Eve, it's a bit more more people, but because we can't ski, we just rent some snowshoes. Mm. So it was a very, very little uh, money that we make in the New Eve. How how much uh, percentage-wise? It's about maybe just uh, 15% we made. So we lost uh, 85%. Being in Châtel by itself is bizarre, but it's even more so if you then continue driving to Morjean, the Swiss village on the other side of the border. Being here in Morjean, it's life as usual and perhaps even a little more than in prior years. Um, A lot of people from France uh, are here. you know, it's a, it's a beautiful day, very sunny, but people do take... I couldn't really believe my eyes. There was such a long line leading up to the ski lift. Uh, buses driving through the snow, people lining up in front of the ski equipment stores. It was just such a big, almost surreal difference uh, to what I had just minutes before seen on the other side of the mountain in France. 
So the locals I spoke to there, they told me they had never seen anything like this before. In Montjean, I spoke to Claudia Kronmacher, who runs several sports equipment stores there with her husband. So um, basically, in the beginning, um, we were a bit scared because we didn't know what would go on, especially during Christmas. Christmas is 20% of the whole year uh, in terms of uh, money. So it was one of the best and maybe the best Christmas um, in 20 years of career of uh, our shop. Wow. But she also said something I generally also observed that day, which is that people really seemed to be following the rules. Everyone in a super busy line for the lift um, had masks on, for instance, and there were no discussions with the security staff about it. One big takeaway from this is that there is no one ideal solution to confront this pandemic. The Swiss are being accused of being reckless by keeping their ski resorts open. And to a certain extent, even some Swiss would say that this might be true, given the high number of cases there. But one big argument they make to counter that criticism is that after one year of restrictions, people need to stay sane somehow. And allowing people a brief escape into the mountains appears to be the compromise and solution they've come up with. France doesn't want to take that risk. Uh, It has one of Europe's highest COVID death tolls and found itself completely overwhelmed last spring. So the country is deeply afraid that this could happen again if they lose control. Rick Nowak is the Post foreign correspondent based in Paris. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We've gotten a ton of questions lately about the new coronavirus variants showing up around the world. If you are interested in finding out more, the Post has a great resource on it with information like where the variants have spread and whether vaccines work effectively against them. We'll put a link to that in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Thank you.